Chapter Three of Book One of Toilers of the Sea, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alison Valdis. Toilers of the Sea, Part Two, Malicious Gilliatt, by Victor Hugo, translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book One, The Rock. Chapter Three, Sound but Not Safe. Juliet did not expect to find only a portion of the ship existing. Nothing in the description, in other respects so precise, of the captain of the Sheltiel, had led him to anticipate the division of the vessel in the centre. It was probable that the diabolical crash heard by the captain of the Sheltiel marked the moment when this destruction had taken place under the blows of a tremendous sea. The captain had, doubtless, worn ship just before this last heavy squall, and what he had taken for a great sea was probably a waterspout. Later, when he drew nearer to observe the wreck, he had only been able to see the stern of the vessel, the reminder, that is to say, the large opening where the forepart had given way, having been concealed from him among the masses of rock. With that exception, the information given by the captain of the Sheltiel was strictly correct. The hull was useless, but the engine remained intact. Such chances are common in the history of shipwreck. The logic of disaster at sea is beyond the grasp of human science. The masts, having snapped short, had fallen over the side. The chimney was not even bent. The great iron plating which supported the machinery had kept it together, and in one piece. The planks of the paddle-boxes were disjointed, like the leaves of wooden sun-blinds, but through their apertures the paddles themselves could be seen in good condition. A few of their floats only were missing. Besides the machinery, the great stern capstan had resisted the destruction. Its chain was there, and thanks to its firm fixture in a frame of joists, might still be of service, unless the strain of the voile should break away the planking. The flooring of the deck bent at almost every point, and was tottering throughout. On the other hand, the trunk of the hull, fixed between the douvres, held together, as we have already said, and it appeared strong. There was something like derision in this preservation of the machinery, something which added to the irony of the misfortune. The sombre malice of the unseen powers of mischief displays itself sometimes in such bitter mockeries. The machine was saved but its preservation did not make it any the less lost. The ocean seemed to have kept it only to demolish it at leisure. It was like the playing of the cat with her prey. Its fate was to suffer there and to be dismembered day by day. It was to be the plaything of the savage amusements of the sea. It was slowly to dwindle and, as it were, to melt away. For what could be done? That this vast block of mechanism and gear, at once massive and delicate, condemned to fixity by its weight, delivered up in that solitude to the destructive elements, exposed in the gripe of the rock to the action of the wind and wave, could, under the frown of that implacable spot, escape from slow destruction, seemed a madness even to imagine. The Durand was the captive of the Douvres. How could she be extricated from that position? How could she be delivered from her bondage? The escape of a man is difficult, 
But what a problem was this, the escape of a vast and cumbrous machine. Chapter 4 A Preliminary Survey Gilliatt was pressed on all sides by demands upon his labours. The most pressing, however, was to find a safe mooring for the barge, then a shelter for himself. The Durand, having settled down more on the larboard than on the starboard side, the right paddle-box was higher than the left. Gilliatt descended the paddle-box on the right. From that position, although the gut of rocks stretching in abrupt angles behind the Douvre had several elbows, he was able to study the ground-plan of the group. This survey was the preliminary step of his operations. The Douvre, as we have already described them, were like two high gable-ends, forming the narrow entrance to a straggling alley of small cliffs with perpendicular faces. It is not rare to find in primitive submarine formations these singular kinds of passages, which seem cut out with a hatchet. This defile was extremely tortuous, and was never without water even in the low tides. A current much agitated traversed it at all times from end to end. The sharpness of its turnings was favourable or unfavourable, according to the nature of the prevailing wind. Sometimes it broke the swell and caused it to fall. Sometimes it exasperated it. This latter effect was the most frequent. An obstacle arouses the anger of the sea and pushes it to excesses. The foam is the exaggeration of the waves. The stormy winds in these narrow and tortuous passages between the rocks are subjected to a similar compression and acquire the same malignant character. The tempest frets in its sudden imprisonment. Its bulk is still immense, but sharpened and contracted, and it strikes with the massiveness of a huge club and the keenness of an arrow. It pierces even while it strikes down. It is a hurricane contracted, like the draught through the crevice of a door. The two chains of rocks, leaving between them this kind of street in the sea, form stages at a lower level than the Douvre, gradually decreasing, until they sunk together at a certain distance beneath the waves. There was another such gullet of less height than the gullet of the Douvre, but narrower still, and which formed the eastern entrance of the defile. It was evident that the double prolongation of the ridge of rocks continued this kind of street under the water as far as the man-rock which stood like a square citadel at the extremity of the group. At low water, indeed, which was the time at which Juliet was observing them, the two rows of sunken rock showed their tips, some high and dry, and all visible and preserving their parallel without interruption. The man formed the boundary, and buttressed on the eastern side the entire mass of the group, which was protected on the opposite side by the two douvres. The whole, from a bird's-eye view, appeared like a winding chaplet of rocks, having the Douvre at one extremity and the man at the other. The Douvre, taken together, were merely two gigantic shafts of granite, protruding vertically and almost touching each other, and forming the crest of one of the mountainous ranges lying beneath the ocean. Those immense ridges are not only found rising out of the unfathomable deep, the surf and the squall had broken them up and divided them like the teeth of a saw. Only the tip of the ridge was visible. This was the group of rocks. The remainder, which the waves concealed, 
must have been enormous. The passage in which the storm had planted the Durand was the way between these two colossal shafts. This passage, zigzag in form as the forked lightning, was of about the same width in all parts. The ocean had so fashioned it. Its eternal commotion produces sometimes those singular regularities. There is a sort of geometry in the action of the sea. From one extremity to the other of the defile, the two parallel granite walls confronted each other at a distance, which the midship frame of the Durand measured exactly. Between the two Douvres, the widening of the little Douvres, curved and turned back as it was, had formed a space for the paddles. In any other part they must have been shattered to fragments. The high double façade of rock within the passage was hideous to the sight. When, in the exploration of the desert of water which we call the ocean, we come upon the unknown world of the sea, all is uncouth and shapeless. So much as Juliet could see of the defile from the height of the wreck was appalling. In the rocky gorges of the ocean we may often trace a strange permanent impersonation of shipwreck. The defile of the Douvres was one of these gorges, and its effect was exciting to the imagination. The oxides of the rock showed on the escarpment here and there in red places, like marks of clotted blood. It resembled the splashes on the wall of an abattoir. Associations of the charnel-house haunted the place. The rough marine stones, diversely tinted, here by the decomposition of metallic amalgams mingling with the rock, there by the mould of dampness manifested in places by purple scales, hideous green blotches, and ruddy splashes, awakened ideas of murder and extermination. It was like the unwashed walls of a chamber which had been the scene of an assassination, or it might have been imagined that men had been crushed to death there, leaving traces of their fate. The peaked rocks produced an indescribable impression of accumulated agonies. Certain spots appeared to be still dripping with the carnage. Here the wall was wet, and it looked impossible to touch it without leaving the fingers bloody. The blight of massacre seemed everywhere. At the base of the double parallel escarpment, scattered along the water's edge, or just below the waves, or in the worn hollows of the rocks, were monstrous rounded masses of shingle, some scarlet, others black or purple, which bore a strange resemblance to internal organs of the body. They might have been taken for human lungs, or heart, or liver, scattered and putrefying in that dismal place. Giants might have been disemboweled there. From top to bottom of the granite ran long red lines, which might have been compared to oozings from a funeral bier. Such aspects are frequent in sea caverns. Chapter 5. A Word Upon the Secret Corporations of the Elements Those who, by the disastrous chances of sea voyages, happen to be condemned to a temporary habitation upon a rock in mid-ocean, find that the form of their inhospitable refuge is by no means a matter of indifference. There is the pyramidal-shaped rock, a single peak rising from the water. There is the circle rock, somewhat resembling a round of great stones. And there is the corridor rock. The latter is the most alarming of all. It is not only the ceaseless agony of the waves between its walls, or the tumult of the imprisoned sea. There are also certain obscure meteorological characteristics, which appear to appertain to this parallelism of two marine rocks. 
The two straight sides seem a veritable electric battery. The first result of the peculiar position of these corridor rocks is an action upon the air and the water. The corridor rock acts upon the waves and the wind mechanically by its form, galvanically by the different magnetic action rendered possible by its vertical height, its masses in juxtaposition and contrary to each other. This form of rock attracts to itself all the forces scattered in the winds and exercises over the tempest a singular power of concentration. Hence there is in the neighbourhood of these breakers a certain accentuation of storms. It must be borne in mind that the wind is composite. The wind is believed to be simple, but it is by no means simple. Its power is not merely dynamic, it is chemical also. But this is not all, it is magnetic. Its effects are often inexplicable. The wind is as much electrical as aerial. Certain winds coincide with the auroras borealis. The wind blowing from the bank of the Argilus rolls the waves one hundred feet high, a fact observed with astonishment by Dumont de Ville. The corvette, he says, knew not what to obey. In the South Seas, the waters will sometimes become inflated like an outbreak of immense tumours, and at such times the ocean becomes so terrible that the savages fly to escape the sight of it. The blasts in the North Seas are different. They are mingled with sharp points of ice, and their gusts, unfit to breathe, will blow the sledges of the Equimo backwards in the snow. Other winds burn. The Simoon of Africa is the typhoon of China, and the Samuel of India. Simoon, Typhoon, and Samuel are believed to be the names of demons. They descend from the heights of the mountains. A storm vitrified the volcano of Toluca. This hot wind, a whirlwind of inky colour, rushing upon red clouds, is alluded to in the, in the Vedas. Behold the black god who comes to steal the red cows. In all these facts we trace the presence of the electric mystery. The wind indeed is full of it, so are the waves. The sea, too, is composite of its nature. Under its waves of water which we see, it has its waves of force which are invisible. Its constituents are innumerable. Of all the elements, the ocean is the most indivisible and the most profound. Endeavour to conceive this chaos so enormous that it dwarfs all other things to one level. It is the universal recipient, reservoir of germs of life and mould of transformations. It amasses and then disperses, it accumulates and then sows, it devours and then creates. It receives all the waste and refuse waters of the earth and converts them into treasure. It is solid in the iceberg, liquid in the wave, fluid in the estuary. Regarded as matter, it is a mass. Regarded as a force, it is an abstraction. It equalizes and unites all phenomena. It may be called the infinite in combination. By force and disturbance, it arrives at transparency. It dissolves all differences and absorbs them into its own unity. Its elements are so numerous that it becomes identity. One of its drops is complete and represents the whole. From the abundance of its tempests, it attains equilibrium. Plato beheld the mazy dances of the spheres. Strange fact, but not the less real. 
the ocean, in the vast terrestrial journey round the sun, becomes, with its flux and reflux, the balance of the globe. In a phenomena of the sea, all other phenomena are resumed. Sea is blown out of a waterspout as from a siphon. The storm observes the principle of the pump. The lightning issues from the sea as from the air. Aboard ships, dull shocks are sometimes felt, and an odour of sulphur issues from the receptacles of chain cables. The ocean boils. The devil has put the sea in his cauldron, said de Routier. In certain tempests, which characterise the equinoxes and the return to equilibrium of the prolific power of nature, vessels breasting the foam seem to give out a kind of fire. Phosphoric lights chase each other along the rigging, so close sometimes to the sailors at their work, that the latter stretch forth their hands to try and try to catch, as they fly, these birds of flame. After the great earthquake of Lisbon, a blast of hot airs from a furnace drove before it towards the city a wave sixty feet high. The oscillation of the ocean is closely related to the convulsions of the earth. These immeasurable forces produce sometimes extraordinary inundations. At the end of the year 1864, one of the Maldive Islands, at a hundred leagues from the Malabar coast, actually foundered in the sea. It sunk to the bottom like a shipwrecked vessel. The fishermen who sailed from it in the morning found nothing when they returned at night. Scarcely could they distinguish their villages under the sea. On this occasion boats were the spectators of the wrecks of houses. In Europe, where nature seems restrained by the presence of civilization, such events are rare and are thought impossible. Nevertheless, Jersey and Guernsey originally formed part of Gaul, and at the moment, while we are writing these lines, an equinoctial gale has demolished a great portion of the cliff of the Firth of Forth in Scotland. Nowhere do these terrific forces appear more formidably conjoined than in the surprising strait known as the Lease Fjord. The Lease Fjord is the most terrible of all the gut-rocks of the ocean. Their terrors are there complete. It is in the northern sea near the inhospitable Gulf of Stavanger, and in the ninety and in the fifty-ninth degree of latitude. The water is black and heavy, and subject to intermitting storms. In this sea, and in the midst of this solitude, rises a great sombre street, a street for no human footsteps. None ever pass through there, no ship ever ventures in. It is a corridor ten leagues in length, between two rocky walls of three thousand feet in height. Such is the passage which presents an entrance to the sea. The defile has its elbows and angles like all these streets of the sea, never straight, having been formed by the irregular action of the water. In the least fjord, sea is almost always tranquil. The sky above is serene, the place terrible. Where is the wind? Not on high. Where is the thunder? Not in the heavens. The wind is under the sea, the lightnings within the rock. Now and then there is a convulsion of the water. At certain moments, when there is perhaps not a cloud in the sky, nearly halfway up the perpendicular rock, at a thousand or fifteen hundred feet above the water, and rather on the southern than on the northern side. The rock suddenly thunders, lightnings dart forth, and then retire like those toys which lengthen out and spring back again in the hands of children. 
They contract and enlarge, strike the opposite cliff, re-enter the rock, issue forth again, recommence their play, multiply their heads and tips of flame, grow bristling with, bl grow bristling with points, strike wherever they can, recommence again, and then are extinguished with a sinister abruptness. Flocks of birds fly wide in terror. Nothing is more mysterious than that artillery issuing out of the invisible. One cliff attacks the other, raining lightning blows from side to side. Their war concerns not man. It signals the ancient enmity of two rocks in the impassable gulf. In the least fjord, the wind whirls like the water in an estuary. The rock performs the function of the clouds, and the thunder breaks forth like volcanic fire. This strange defile is a voltaic pit, the plates of which are the double line of cliffs. End of chapter 5